Welcome back to Inside the Hive. I'm Joe Hagan, and I'm here with... Emily Jane Fox. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. A new dawn, a new day. I'm feeling good. Yeah. I have a bounce in my step. Yeah. I feel like yesterday morning I woke up and I felt physical relief. And I didn't, I didn't anticipate that. And I also was so against the inauguration. In my head, I was like, he's a wartime president. Square him in the Oval Office. Give him the second dose of the vaccine while he's in there. Yeah. No pomp and circumstance. Let's have a big parade in July 4th or whenever the country feels like it's ready to do it. Don't, there's, there's violence. There is a pandemic. Like This is not the thing right now. And then I watched it yesterday morning and I was like, I was so wrong. I was so wrong. It was so great. Lady Gaga comes out in this magnificent splendor and blows the roof off the sky. I just felt like I'm like a, a galactic reset button was, was hit yesterday. Were you on television yesterday? Were you commentating? Yesterday, I was not. I was writing. I have a story coming out about our our two favorite, Jared and Ivanka, and how they are trying to go on vacation right now. Florida, I hear, is warm this time of year. Well, they're going to Florida. They had tried to go elsewhere, but um, for various reasons, were not welcome in, in some of the places they wanted to go. And uh, not only did they buy a $32 million plot of land, but they've also rented a condo while they're building their dream home on that $32 million plot of land. And they could stay at Mar-a-Lago. So they are rich with Florida properties and rich with everything else. Um, but no one deserves a break more than them, truthfully. Ah. They have sacrificed so much for our country. Dear God. Being the king and queen ain't easy. So that's where we are. Watching them yesterday, I mean, we don't want to spend too much time talking about them right in this moment, but I'm just saying, watching them depart the White House yesterday, watching the video of when they landed and uh, Melania sort of walked swiftly away into the car and abandoned her husband out on the tarmac. The whole thing had a feeling of like the, um, you know, sad trombone at the end of a movie when the bad guys are being hauled off to prison or wherever they're going. Um, There was something satisfying about it. I'm not going to lie. It was deeply cathartic. Everything about yesterday felt cathartic. It feels light. The press briefing, the fact that there was a press briefing and then the the focus from heaven, the focus was on trust and on transparency and not necessarily kumbaya. We're all going to get along and we're all going to agree on everything, but you will at least know the truth. And that is just a breath. I'm very excited about it. You know what else I'm excited for? Your interview. Can you tell us my, a little bit about what we have to My interview, yes. Well, we have the New York Times columnist Charles Blow on today. He's got a new book out, The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. And it's as, you know, uh, provocative as it sounds. It's, uh, you know, in some ways, I think... Some people will receive it divisively. It's it's um, it's making a pretty radical proposition. It's looking at, uh, you know, we just one success story that kind of got a little bit buried uh, in all of the hubbub of the 
of the coup <laughs> was that, you know, two Democrats won in Georgia and that Stacey Abrams had a big hand in that and driving out the vote there. And uh, Charles Blow sees Georgia as basically, uh, you know, the example of what can be replicated in other states across the South. And it will require driving uh, young black populations down to southern cities to kind of uh, take over the levers of power in state capitals around the country and to, you know, wield power of their own. And, uh, you know, the flip side of that is he's making a very strong case that, you know, the reliance on white allies and liberals in big cities like New York and L.A. and other places has failed and that whites you know, liberals uh, with all their wonderful white liberal guilt cannot be trusted to uh, forward the progress of uh, of black people in this country. And that, um, you know, he's it's like what it sounds. It's a black power manifesto and its roots are in, you know, as much Malcolm X as anything. And mm. um, so, you know, that's kind of exciting to read about. It's also, um, as I say in the interview and when I talk to him, um, well, for one, we have a new administration coming in, and there's some hope there, and he sees some hope there, although he's hoping uh, – he's also very leery of the word hope mm. <laughs> after all that you know, black Americans have been through in the last four years, certainly, but over the decades. But he sees uh, things like multiculturalism and integration and all the things that came out of the civil rights of the 60s as essentially uh, non-working. So let's come up with a new plan. And there's a lot of complications and sticky wickets in that proposal. So that's what we get into. And it's very much related to the agenda we see before us in this country. How are we going to make it so that, uh, you know, if you got a third of the country who are Trumpers, whose essential core value is white supremacism, or at least implicitly, how do you square that? How do you, how do you have a union? So, you know, these are the questions that we're going to be grappling with in the, as we go forward. Well, these are the questions and these are the things that we should all be thinking about and should be part of our day-to-day -day conversations and part of our news diet and consumption. And this is the beauty of the phase that we're entering into now where we get to have the space to have these kinds of conversation because we are not just flinging from one chaotic nightmare That's to right. the next. So what a gift to have the space to talk about these things that are so vitally important. And I think we should all obviously have these conversations, but appreciate the fact that we are now once again able to have these conversations, that we have the space and the room and the brain power and the the will to do these, not, not only on this level, but all the way to the top. So what a great thing. Let's get into it. And Here's to a better day. Here's to a better day. Let's get some stuff done. This is Inside the Hive. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Hey, 
Uh, Charles Blow, welcome to Inside the Hive. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Kind of an amazing week to have you here. You've got a new book, The Devil You Know, a Black Power Manifesto. Super provocative, impassioned book. And I want to talk about that in a moment. But first, I wanted to ask you right off the top, um, what we witnessed yesterday. What were your impressions? Uh, I don't know if you were sitting in front of the TV like I was all day, but I imagine some form of that. What, what was your your feelings as you watched the whole country sort of transform in front of our eyes, or at least appear to, right? I wasn't there all day. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I didn't watch all day. Um, the first part of it is relief uh, that you do re- return to some form of normalcy, a normal president that has a general respect for truth and history. That's very important. And it was a beautiful display, all things considered, since we are now in a pandemic and we are also, uh, the capital at least is under the threat of insurrectionists. Yeah. Um, it was beautiful to see us be able as Americans to witness a transfer of power in a normal kind of way. Yeah. But I'm also reminded uh, that of the sugar high we had after Barack Obama was inaugurated, you know, that, that it's wonderful. And they should have some bit of a honeymoon, but then the hard work starts. And so I try not to overdo the gushing because, it, you know, it is it is designed to elicit uh, those sorts of feelings. All of that stagecraft is designed to do that to you. Yeah. But there is real work to be done. Yeah. Well, I never go to your columns in the Times looking for uh, a cockeyed optimism. <laughs> I don't know how to take that. <laughs> well, you know, you're going to get the real, uh, uh, the sobering uh, slap in the face. And I think effectively and, and necessary. I mean, you say in your column uh, this week, you know, these cries for unity are great, but they have to be reconciled with the facts that there is a whole chunk of this country that is a sort of opposed, you know, a whole other population of people, you know, a white yes, supremacist yes. group. Uh, and you say, you know, there's got to be some justice here. Um, yes. And uh, I saw that Speaker Pelosi this morning says um, she actually said it would be, quote, harmful for unity to make nice and ignore Trump's actions surrounding the Capitol riot, right, in yes. order to move on. And that's, a, I guess, a note that you would agree with and I think is is right. Um so yesterday, Vice President Kamala Harris swore in two new senators from Georgia, yes. Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. So as you know, as we all know, Stacey Abrams drove so much of the voter turnout in Georgia. And in your book, you call Georgia, quote unquote, proof of concept for the idea behind your book, the thesis, the proposition, what you call a grand generational undertaking. And what you're proposing is essentially people have heard of the great migration uh, of the 20th century of sort of black Americans from the South to the Northern cities. And you're proposing the reverse, that it's time for black Americans in the North to go and create political capital and power in the South. What is the genesis of this idea for you? You're in your own personal experience. How did you come up with this idea? I mean, it's it's obviously something that we're seeing in Georgia, but you you were thinking about it before that, I take it. You know, I, uh, it's it's hard for me to 
pinpoint the germination moment. I, I will say that it feels like I've been writing this book the entire time I've ever been writing this column. Uh, and so the day of, the moment of, of thinking of it in those terms, I'm not sure when it was, but it became clear. I mean, I wrote the book proposal two and a half, almost three years ago. And in the moment that I wrote the book proposal, none of this had happened. Right. But, you know, it was one of those aha moments in the middle of the night. And I stayed up for the next three, four days sleeping almost never and wrote 25 pages of a book proposal, which would have been, you know, a good chunk of this book. Yeah. Uh, Because it, it just dawned, all of it dawned on me and it all crystallized all the things I had been writing about and how to address them seemed to be in this way. And, and then in the research, I started to find more and more people who have been proposing a similar concept for at least a hundred years if not longer. Right. You mentioned this guy, Moses Fisk in 1795. Yes. Yes. Who proposes like creating a black province. Is that, was that the one that they referred to as the Republic of New Africa? That is not. So the Republic of New Africa uh, is uh, born in, after the rise of the late sixties, this idea of a region, a province for black people, that is actually before the civil war. Yeah. These are liberals in the North trying to figure out how do we deal with this concept? If, if they do become freed, then what? And one of the proposals was to create a province in which black people could be sort of autonomous yeah. on this land. Now, that was before, clearly before we, you know, the United States stretched all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Right. There was also, there was no discussion in that uh, those proposals about black people being able to vote and have political power in what was the United States at that time. But it was autonomy. And this is the whole concept of what you're saying is that uh, you write, you know, the possession of real statewide political power in the South, which is where you're proposing, and you yourself, having lived in New York uh, for a time, moved back to the South, and you talk about it in the book, very eloquently, but the possession of real statewide political power in the South could radically alter the architecture of oppression in this country. And this is what the idea here is, you know, to encourage uh, the next generation of young black Americans who may be residing in northern cities to consider going south to, let's say, Memphis, right? Mm -hmm. And actually not Memphis. (laughs) (laughs) No, why not? Tennessee is not on my list of recommended states. Oh, that's interesting. Why not? Uh, well, I, I identify a string of states from Louisiana all the way up to Delaware that kind of track the I-20 to I-95 corridor. Right. And, uh, and I'm specifically targeting states where blacks are already roughly a third of the voter population, somewhere around 30 percent, some a little bit more, some a little bit less, because now you already have a, a head start. Uh, and so it doesn't take as many reverse migrants to to change those states. Right. The tipping point would be more uh, accessible in terms. Yes. Yeah. And in the book, you you talk a little bit about going to other political figures and asking them what they think of this idea. And you kind of do mm-hmm. a little bit of a, uh, you know, you field test this idea with some people. What have people thought about this idea? I mean, 
in sort of in a lot of them are mainstream Democrats, for instance. Like, sure. what 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 was has been the reception when you field tested this idea with people? Uh, the first response is uh, a litany of questions because they haven't really thought about it right in any serious way, and. In the end, you know, I did tons of those interviews and used very few of them because it was a monotony of, oh, really? Oh, you know, and then them, them asking me questions. Right. And so it, I wasn't really, <laughs> I wasn't really getting um, material from them. But but in the end, it it vacillates from people who are, who think, oh, this is a interesting, fascinating idea to those who worry that about how would it work. Yeah, uh, they haven't. They just haven't thought about it enough to have thoughtful, deep responses to. It. Well, yeah, and and how would it work? I mean, that that part of it is convincing people that this is a great idea, and then there's just the reality of people moving and going yeah. to new cities that they don't know anything about, and having people receive them and feeling comfortable, and and, and having you know, as you point out in great detail in the book sort of uh, dispelling people's anxieties about the South, right? Yes, I, I have several responses to that. Uh, one is it's already happening. Right. The reverse migration is already underway. Uh, the, a number of black millennials alone who've moved back to the South from uh, North and West is, by my estimation at this point, already outnumbers the number of people who moved North in the Great Migration in the first wave. Now, there are four times as many people as there were in, in early 1900, black people as there were in early 1900. So it doesn't have the same volume and percentage wise, but there's a, it's already happening. Yeah. Number two, the idea that it is somewhere they don't know it, that's actually not true. Our uh, Black people have been in America for 400 years. The entire 400 years, the majority of black people have lived in the South. And in fact, up until the Great Migration happened, 90 percent of black people in America lived in the South. If you are attached to a northern or western city, that attachment is only 100 years old if your parents or grandparents or great-grandparents were the absolute first migrants of the Great Migration. Right. Most likely, they are not. If you go to the cemetery or your family plot a cemetery or wherever you're from in Cleveland or Detroit or Chicago or New York, there may be one generation buried there, maybe two if, they're, if they migrated early. Your lineage in those places is not long. You These Many of these people already go back every summer to some southern city right. where the rest of the family is for the family reunion. Right. Right. So this is not I'm not asking people to go some strange place. I'm only asking you to return to where your family was from in the beginning. Right. Connect with your grandparents or even great grandparents, as the case may be. Yes. Um, well, you know, one of the things about this, your book that's interesting and it's it's controversial, I think, or or something that uh, is not the usual thing that we hear is, is that you try to dispel this myth that Northern cities are actually are better for black people, right? That New York is not less racist, <laughs> right? Tell me a little bit more about that because it, this gets deeper into what hasn't happened as a result of the Northern migration. I mean, that, that it, and then essentially it's failed. It was a failed at the end, failed to um, materialize inequality. Yes. So, so for hundreds of years, actually, uh, well, at least a hundred, uh, Northerners who uh, uh, at some point started to uh, uh, 
outlaw slavery, could then look down at their noses at their Southern brethren and say, you have this institution that's odious and we want to have nothing to do with it. And we're the liberals and you're the, you're the uh, conservatives and uh, we hate what you're doing and it is horrible. Right. However, that you could do that long distance. There were very few black people in the North. When the Great Migration began to happen, they had to, the white people in the North had, and the West had to put their money where their m- mouth was. Right. Do you truly believe in, in, in egalitarianism and equality for black people? Or you just want a morally superior position for your, for your argument? And when black people migrated, they found that northern cities and states started to behave very much like their southern counterparts. Racial segregation in housing, racial segregation in education, uh, hyper-policing of their neighborhoods. This was many of the very same taxes that, that the South had used. Yeah. Right? And I have lived half my life in the South, half in, out of it. And anecdotally, I knew that, you know, this, there was no place in America where racism wasn't there. It was just the way that people talked about it and the way that they expressed it that was slightly different. So I asked the people... Uh, at the uh, project Implicit Bias, uh, who has done, you know, they've done hundreds of thousands of these tests uh, to test implicit bias of people to cut their data by region and by race. And what they found was there was no difference in the level of implicit racial bias, meaning anti-black, pro-white bias among white people between those white people living in the South and those living in the North and those living in the Midwest. This is Inside the Hive. Well, that, that it's interesting because you, you, what you describe in the book is a kind of like white liberal lip service and kind of kabuki theater about around equality. But in actuality, just more policing, ghettoizing, right, of black populations that did essentially the same thing and that the attitudes were essentially the same if you scratch the surface, right? Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's interesting because let's talk about the Black Lives Matter movement this summer. You have some really, really in the opening of the book, some pretty, I don't know, they seem incendiary to me, um, you know, that you, you know, when you talk about when some poli- uh, police reform bill stalled in the House, I want to just quote this from the book. People were forced to consider whether many of the people who marched and carried signs were truly committed to black lives and black liberation, or whether some, deprived of rites of passage, parties, and proms, had simply developed a cabin fever racial consciousness, using the protests as congregational outlets, treating them like a social justice Coachella, (laughs) as systemic racism Woodstock. So tell me a little bit about, I mean, you, you, as we saw, there were a lot of Young white people were a huge part of the protests over the summer, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think some of them, you know, who may have been jailed or beaten or suffered some actual consequences of matter might might protest this um, this framing. But did you feel like the net effect of the protest, therefore, was inconsequential or didn't live up to the hype? Or what are you saying? Well, first, uh, first of all, it's stalled in the Senate, not in the House. Uh, but, but beyond that, we have to remove the framing of the white awakening as the liberation of black people. Right. I, I don't even want to discuss the idea of whether or not they feel that they grew 
or whether or not they <laughs> feel that they were truly committed. Yeah. What I know is that the, the, the power dynamics did not shift. What I know is that the political polling, the polling around Black Lives Matter dropped appreciably once the summer was over, once states started to reopen, once schools reopened, once people went back to work. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know what it was. And I guess history will tell us truly what it was. But I know that people were able to go back to some sense of normal living without having any real change around the issue of racial justice, around the issue of police accountability, other than uh, New York and, and, and California passing uh, some limited police reform, some police departments banning chokeholds, some few police departments insisting that off other officers have to intervene. The power dynamic that forces the police to be in those neighborhoods in the first place, in that posture of aggression, mm-hmm. didn't change. And people went back to their regular lives. And people's attitudes shifted back closer to this. I'm talking about white people here. Shifted back, shifted back closer to where they were before George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so... Obviously, we were under the Trump administration during this time, but some of these are state changes you're looking to have made or that you feel should be made, right? The vast majority of them are state changes. I think that is the issue that we have to grapple with. Mm-hmm. Many of the things that people are protesting in the streets, the, the federal government has a limited hand in those things. Mass incarceration is by and large a state and local, local issue. You have to change it on the state and local level. Right. Uh, the criminal justice system most touches your life on the local and state level, not federal. Most of us are not committing federal crimes if it is a crime, or you're not being accused of federal crimes. Right. Well, I mean, this is a, um, gets to the sort of heart of your book, which is that you're saying that black citizens, voters can't depend on white allies any longer, right? And that there's, that the racism inherent in the society as a whole is just too deep for them to fix <laughs> for us. And I'm speaking, you know, in, you know, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing your book in a way. And you, cause you say in here battling racism in this country is like cutting heads off the Hydra. And that if you, you know, you have a civil rights movement in the sixties, it's going to pop up in a, just another fashion, a subtler, more insidious way. I mean, is, is that, mm-hmm. am I getting that right? Sure, absolutely. And it's not that you can't depend on uh, allies, white or otherwise, in the abstract. It's that in reality, if the white allies were the erasers of injustice, it would have been erased already. Well, possibly, possibly. I mean, there's we think of this Trump. What do you mean possibly? Well, no, I I, know. But I aren't we haven't we been going through stages do you think that it's always been like one step forward, two steps back and every all, all on the way? I mean, I, I guess the question is, and I'm not proposing to know this, but like, has there been no progress and or and it was the Trump administration, the revelation that there has been no progress? I, I absolutely detest the progress argument. Right. Completely. And that's OK. It, that gets I'm fascinated with that because the experience I had reading your book was just how sad I felt the entire time reading it. I felt really sad. Um, and, and I'll tell you why. You and I are the same age. 
yeah. roughly. I'm about to turn 50. And, you know, we grew up in the same general culture, right? Different mm -hmm. sides of the tracks in every case, probably. And so I can't speak for your own, for your experience of America over those years. But coming out of, you know, being born post-60s, we all came up with these ideas, maybe just through silly TV programming and Stevie Wonder on Sesame Street or whatever, or but also Martin Luther King saying that one day the little black boys and little black girls and the little white boys and white, you know, brothers and sisters would be able to be together, right? And in a way, you're saying that that dream is not is naive. Well, in fact, Dr. King himself said later in his life that he had been slightly naive yeah. in what he said during that I Have a Dream speech. So I'm not saying that. He said it. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, your book's thesis is a little bit like a, a critique and a proposition to deal with that naivete. Yes, I, I think that the, I think that that is fair. Uh, but but I think that the, the dismantling the progress argument is really important to do here. Yeah. Uh, how is it progress when it's taken centuries to undo a thing that should never have been done in the first place and it's still not done? Mm -hmm. And somehow black people are supposed to to pat white people on the back and say, you're getting there. Mm -hmm. I'll keep wait I'm waiting on you, but you're making keep keep crawling. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not supposed to feel good about that. You know, I have three children in this world. The idea that they can still be fighting some form of the thing that I'm fighting today when I am gone from this earth is insane to me. It is, ins it is insane and both it, not only insane, but insulting to me that people should, should say to me that you should take my gradual crawling out of a cave and pat me on the back for it. Right. You know, you you write in the book that you're you've always been attracted to sort of the, the literature of black rage, you know, you feel that, that it's active and empowering, you know, and I get that from your columns every week, by the way, you know, I'm, and I, it's enervating and, 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 and something that I is necessary, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the, the danger of it to me, it's not danger. It's just one of the asterisks to it, I think, is that you, in the book, you break down, you know, white people into conservatives who want an absolution from guilt, right? They don't want to have to feel guilty about other people. And white liberals who are seeking self-flagellation. And you say the markets for both are robust. True, mm -hmm. especially right now as we see the extremes are so prevalent in the society, right? But don't you think that, the, that there is a, there's a spectrum of people that I guess I wonder if there's any middle ground between what you're proposing, which to me seems like a a kind of woke and progressive segregation. You know, it's it's or is it that blacks move to the south and they are they are you proposing that they vote as a block? You're not proposing that they vote no, as a block. I specifically say that they don't. Yeah, I specifically that is not. A, yeah, yeah, and that was interesting to me too because I. I, I have been so flummoxed, and I think a lot of people are flummoxed, and nobody really explained it, was how so many people, how so, how so many black uh, men voted for Trump. You know, it just gets to the idea that when you are advising that, uh, that black people take over state powers and levers of power and sort of have, um, you know, take over their own destinies, 
it may not come out to be what you're envisioning, perhaps, or at least what Democrats have always envisioned, right? Well, well, first of all, let's make sure that I make something very clear. When I say black power, I'm not me. I'm not talking about party power, Democrat or Republican, or any, otherwise. Just power. So power. I don't yeah. think the idea of, of black power with the Democratic Party. Yeah. Right. Uh, the second thing is, it is very curious to me how white liberals in particular can get their backs up about this idea and black people voting as a block when, as long as they are spread out over the country, diluted to the point where they have no majorities in any state, the same white liberals will get their back up about black people not voting as an absolute block. If the 14% of black men who vote for a Republican gets you all excited, but uh, no election since the exit polls have been taken have white people voted in, in a clear majority for the Democratic candidate. White people are not voting as an absolute block, but they demand that of black people. And when they don't do it, mm -hmm. they get upset. Yeah. Well, I think that this election cycle that we just went through was in some ways a possibly a game changer in that it was transparent that black voters changed the destiny of the country in this in this latest election and everybody was aware of it and everybody saw it and there were voices expressing that and and, and in a way this is one hopes the beginning of something uh, do you are you hopeful about what we just saw growing into something like what you want to happen Absolutely. I mean, when I say it's a proof and concept, it absolutely is. There were two wings on uh, on that plane that, that made this happen. One was the incredible organizing by tons of people, including Stacey Abrams, to get more people registered. The other thing was a reverse migration that gave you more bodies to register. The last time that, the, that Georgia went Democrat was for Bill Clinton in 1992. At that time, Black people were roughly 25% of the population of the state of Georgia. It is now 33% of the population of the state of Georgia. It's in 1990 to 2020, the black population in, in this state doubled. That means it grew by 1.7 million people. And what that said to me was a, was a number of things. The, first of all, this is the first time that black people, this is the first time in American history, other than Reconstruction, where you don't have exit polls like, clearly from Reconstruction, First time in American history where we can track it, where black people were the majority of the coalition that flipped a state. Yeah. And the second, it was the first time in American history that a black center, and only been 10 or 11 of them now, 11 of them, where black people were the majority of the coalition that elected that person. That was huge to me because a huge part of that change was that young people packed up their things in Detroit, Chicago, Cleveland, New York, Philadelphia, and moved. This is Inside the Hive. A little earlier, we talked about your personal biography. You grew up in Louisiana, mm -hmm. and uh, there's a moment in the book when you recall being offered a full ride at LSU after high school. Yes. Uh, but instead, you went to Grambling State, which is a largely uh, black college. Uh, what did the recruiter for Grambling tell you? 
I, right. So I had two full scholarships, uh, one to Louisiana State University, one to Louisiana Tech, both majority white schools. Uh, and he said, we'll give you a full scholarship, too. And he said, uh, Louisiana Tech doesn't need you. Uh, LSU doesn't need you. Grambling needs you. And I knew exactly what he was saying, uh, even at whatever I was, 17, 18 years old, was that I was just going to be part of the number. You know, I, I was going to pad their 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 statistics of integration and diversity, and I would be smart doing it. But at Grambling, I was going to do something different. I was going to both get and receive that my presence in the midst of my peers was going to help everybody. And going to a largely black college and being in a black uh, community and moving to Atlanta after spending some time in New York, this arc, I think, informs your vision of this book, doesn't it? Sure, absolutely. And you went to New York for a professional career and the great you know, liberal bastion of New York and came into contact with the limitations of the North. You wrote right in the book that it will sound to some people like um, you know, you're throwing in the towel on the grand experiment of multiculturalism. And there were times reading this book where I thought, is he suggesting that integration is a failed idea, that some kind of, you know, racial detente is called for, that it's better, given the racist architecture of the country, that it's better not to pursue that any longer? Well, I, I would I would turn that question back on you in this way and say, even at the height, when the few states that were majority black, even at the height of that black population, none were over basically 61%. So 40% of those people in that state were white. Is that not, not also diversity? I think people, our concept of diversity is kind of a mirroring effect. Uh, you have to be the percentage that you are in the whole country in order for the place to be considered diverse. Otherwise it is the black neighborhood, right? But if But every state in America has been majority white for the last 90 years. And no one ever looks at that as a problem. Seven states right now are 90 plus percent white. And nobody looks at that and says, oh, my God, this is a problem for diversity. This is a segregated state. We don't say that. But the, I, the, the, but the very mention of the fact that black people could get 51 percent of the population in any state, we didn't start to worry about whether or not that's segregation. We have to turn that glove inside out and ask the same question the other way around. And if the answer is the same, great. But if it's not the same answer, then... The question is problematic. Right. I guess what I'm asking is you're not proposing. Uh, I don't know if you're proposing this. I'm trying to envision when you lived in New York, you went to see some old friends of yours living in Atlanta in in a largely black suburb. And it was black people living with each other instead of living as, you know, addition to some white population or culture. Uh, I, I lived in New York for 26 years. Black people are mainly living with each other. New York has the veneer of a multicultural society, but but if you look at a map of racial identities uh, and how they're distributed in New York, everybody's living isolated from each other. It is a balkanized city, and it's not just New York. You look, you look the same map of Chicago; it's the same way. I find that sad. It's so defeating when you think about the way you want the world to look like and the way it does look like. And I'm as guilty as anyone for not making it different. As you write, the great white liberals of the North have these ideas of equality, but don't actually act on them. They gentrify neighborhoods. They vote for more cops on the street and racist policing. 
like I said, reading your book, I felt sad. Yes. And I think it's right to put it, put the blame where it should be. White America is resegregated and and has continued to segregate. This is not something that black people or Hispanic people or Asian people wanted. I I quoted uh, one um, sociologist who has done work in Cook County around Chicago about around real estate. She looks at like people say they want a diverse, live in a diverse neighborhood. Well, let's see how they actually buy houses. Black people, their ideal diversity was literally a mix. Same thing with Hispanics. It's like a third, a third, a third. White people's ideal diversity was always them in the majority and other people making up some splitting the difference on the other side. As individuals, we only have so many choices and ability to control the destiny of our society as a whole. And if you're a white liberal in New York or Chicago, you'll vote for Democrats in hopes of improving things. And it doesn't always end up happening. And as I'm reading your book, I'm asking myself, is it your hope that white people read this book? And if so, what do you want white people to take away from this book? Listen, I think it would be educational for white people to read the book. Uh, many of them, no doubt, will. If, I, if I'm looking at the people who said that they bought it on social media who contact me, that's a large part of the people who said they bought it. I'm, this is uh, a manifesto written to the people who would do the moving, though. This, I am overtly trying to reach the people who I want to seriously consider a relocation, and that is young Black people. Do you know young Black people who have done this? Is there a consciousness among young Black people who are embracing your idea? I think not necessarily this idea overtly, although they're already migrating. They are my, they're making kind of individual, personal, economic, and health decisions to move back to the South. Uh, gentrification, pricing you out of, of your place, wherever you are, in whatever city. Also, it's hostile. You know, you have to remember that stop and frisk is, did not happen in Jackson, Mississippi or Memphis, Tennessee. That happened in New York and they moved to Chicago and moved to L.A. These are the destination cities for the black, black migration. That's where that crazy hyper policing was happening. That's where the militarizing of the police started to happen in those cities. I don't, I don't tense up in Atlanta when I see the police officers. Yeah. I just want to tell you a little personal story. I spent some time in Memphis, Tennessee, and I know it's not one of the places in your in your proposition, but I was in Memphis for a story. I was interviewing Boo Mitchell, the son of Willie Mitchell. Do you know who he is? I do know. Right. He's the he produced all the Al Green albums. Okay. And I'm a big music fan, as people who listen to this podcast know. And Boo invited me to a dance party on the roof of the Peabody Hotel in downtown Memphis. And Memphis is a fascinating town, incredible music yeah. history. Uh, but also political history, the site, of course, where Martin Luther King was assassinated. Mm-hmm. And there was a dance band, and it was really eye-opening because this was the most racially integrated scene I'd ever seen. Uh, it's the kind you rarely find in New York, really. There was a sense of ease between people that I wasn't used to in New York. And it opened my eyes to the fact that the South, which I've always thought of as being essentially racist, uh, you know— wasn't what I thought it was. There's there's more familiarity between the races. Um, was I just imagining that? There, there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, there are there are 1,200 majority black cities in America. 90% of them are in the South. That means that 
the relationship between people in community changes. When 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 I have had to live uh, in majority black space, you subconsciously absorb some of that culture. You visit, you know, a foreign country for a week. You subconsciously start to absorb some of it in a week's time, let alone a lifetime. And so when, and that's the same thing that happens to me in Atlanta. I realize that white people in this city who have lived here for any length of time, it's been a majority black city for, since 1970, that they have absorbed some of black culture and appreciation for it. It's a different relationship. It doesn't mean that racism goes away. It is just the, the relationship between you, people who are not like you, and power as it exists and is expressed must be altered for you to have a happy existence. And so people relate to each other in a different frame than they do in a city like New York, which has only had one black mayor in his whole history, never been a majority of black city, never going to be, only have, a, uh, a, I don't think ever has had a black police chief. Power doesn't, even though there's 2 million black people in New York City, that's not where the power is in New York City. And so your relationship to that power is different. The power in a city like New Orleans, where everything about the culture is infused with black culture, is different. Let's take your thesis in The Devil You Know in this book and flash forward another 100 years. Let's say that more states in the South have more black representation or black leadership, power brokers, and that your idea has manifested itself in our politics. Do you think that the net result will be better relationships between black and white people? Well, that's not the way I frame the argument. I, I you know, uh, if that is uh, an effect, if there are better racial relations as an effect of it, great. But my proposition is a power proposition. It does not center a relationship with white people in it. It is a power to make government responsive to you, power to make government not impose a, a white supremacist a, a architecture above you. And it's also not to create utopia. If, ra if, if racial concentration created utopia uh, and racial power created utopias, then all white people would be flourishing under white supremacy. That's not true. It's just that in the aggregate, you do better when you're uh, benefited, when you're not oppressed by the white supremacy. I'm just trying to move black people to a position where they have some space in this country where they're not oppressed by white supremacy. They may still have the same problems with income inequality. They may still have the same problems with hunger. Uh, uh, but in the aggregate, it should be better. I think any idea of thinking that you're going to create utopia out of this idea creates what they say makes the perfect enemy of the good. There is no doubt in my mind whatsoever that creating space that is not governed by white supremacy is a good thing. Will it solve all your problems? No, it won't. It gives you a starting place from which you are not starting down in the hole. You're starting on the same level ground with everybody else. Right. It's establishing a baseline from which we can have a whole country. Yes. I'm the resident optimist at this podcast, and I try and hope and come up with reasons for hope, especially in the last few years. And as you write in the book, however, hope has a dubious history in and of itself, especially for Black Americans, most recently with Barack Obama, and not everything turns out as you might hope. But I think your book is a great conversation starter around these ideas. And uh, on the one hand, we're in an age of intense identity politics and people wanting very much to represent and advocate for people like themselves. 
And how do we square that with these old visions of multiculturalism and utopianism? Um, it's a very complicated proposition. Um, it can get you down, thinking we can never resolve this. And I have three children of my own, and my oldest, her best friend, is an African-American, and they're both much more woke than I am, but they're not yet in a place that their identities are so rigid that it divides them. And uh, I look at them, and it warms my heart, even as I worry about the realities of the world that could work to divide them. Um, but I want to thank you for coming on the show and talking about this book. I think it's a really important book. Thank you for having me. Thank you to our guest, Charles Blow, and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can get these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to Brett Fuchs and the folks at Cadence 13 for their work. And of course, thanks to our sponsors. Please support them any way you would support this podcast. We will see you right here next week. 